If I can ask you just to do something a little unusual, if you're able to, can you stand, face the camera over there, and then let's all wave, because Paul and Peggy are online, so it's an opportunity for us to say we miss them, and we... uh, we (laughs) Are we going to do it again? Okay. Special effects. And, and, and say, for anybody else who's online, uh, we want to make you feel special as well. Um, so, uh, we're now going to uh, turn to God's Word, and we're working through a message series in the, uh, the letter to the Roman church. This morning we find ourselves coming to the, the second part of chapter 7. So I invite you to turn there uh, in your Bibles. Um, but before you, we get into the passage, let me ask you a question. Now, don't answer this out loud. This is just between you and I. Have you ever been in trouble with the law? Now, don't rush to the answer. Think about it carefully. And then while you're thinking about it, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I already know the answer for each and every one of you. That's a good question, Anthony. So the truth is that every single one of us has been in trouble with the law. But I also know that every single one of us is in trouble with the law right now, in the present as well as in the past. And whether you agree with me or not, or whether you're scratching your head wondering what I'm talking about, I'm afraid it's not simply a case of my word against yours. See, I have access to sworn written statements testifying to against you, a document that attests to the trouble that you've been in with the law in the past, as well as attests to the trouble that you're in with the law right now. But if it is of any consolation whatsoever, then I don't stand before you as a witness against you. And I certainly don't stand before you as a prosecutor. I stand before you as a co-defendant. And honestly, I know the case against me is airtight and damning. As bad as that all may sound, I can tell you that in this documented evidence against us, there is also good news and there is hope. You see, this testimony against us also includes the one way of rescue out of the trouble that we are in. So I think it's important, and I hope you agree with me, that we examine this testimony together. First, to make sure that we are very clear on what this past trouble is that we have been in with the law, as well as understanding what the present trouble is that we are are facing, and then to absolutely make sure that we are clear on what this one way of rescue from those troubles actually is. Of course, you probably realize by now that I'm not talking about trouble with the legal systems in this country, but I'm, and I'm not talking about trouble with only one type of law. I am talking about troubles with laws that are recorded in our passage for this morning, written evidence against us in God's word that has been preserved 
so that we this morning can examine the case against us. But it's also preserved so that we can examine and embrace and rejoice in the means of rescue. And as we examine the case against us for our past trouble we've had, as well as the present trouble that we're in, we're going to see that at the center of all of this trouble is the sin that is in, within us. Now, I realize that that's not a fun or cheery topic. But as we remember and we reflect on this passage, I want us to remember the words of J.C. Ryle, a bishop of England in the 19th century, who said, Awful and tremendous as the right view of sin undoubtedly is, no one need faint or despair if they have a right view of Jesus Christ at the same time. And I will do my best to keep both on view for us this morning as we work through this passage together. So let's read Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 7 to 25, the end of the chapter, and then I will pray with us. The Apostle Paul writes this, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, 
I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you preserve for us truths which, with, apart from your word, we would have no hope of understanding. But even so, Lord, when we come to your word, sometimes we find it difficult to understand. We resist being corrected. We resist being called out for things where we are guilty of sin. And this passage is one of those. So I pray that you would help us. I pray that you'd help us come to this passage humbly. Help us to submit to what you would say to us. Help me to articulate it clearly. And help us to hear and receive. And by the power of your spirit welling in us. Help us to be transformed by your ever-present grace upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we get into the text of our passage, it's necessary for us to understand just very briefly how Paul got to this point in the letter of the Romans. We need to understand the context for these verses. And you'll remember, as we made our way through Romans chapters 1 through 3, Paul has laid out the devastating reality that all people, every single one of God's creatures, have turned their back upon God, their creator, and have fallen short of God's standard of holiness, his good and right standards. And as such, everyone deserves God's justice to be brought upon us, in condemnation, and in wrath. And then in the second half of chapter 3, through chapters 4 and 5, Paul brings the glorious good news and hope that it is possible to be declared righteous in God's sight, to be made right with him again. But it's not through anything that we can achieve by ourselves, not by works, trying harder, not by following God's law, but through faith, in a faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Jesus' sacrificial death for us in our place. And on account of that alone, God it will account to us the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Then we get to chapter 6, which starts to address the question, well then, now what? Are we free to do whatever we like? Because we're, not un- we're free from sin, God's going to forgive us regardless? No, absolutely not. If we're Christians, then we are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection to new life. And we are to walk out that new life. And then last Sunday we heard from Brandon preaching from the first verses in this chapter that Christians have died with Christ. We have died to the law of God in the sense that God's law is no longer the measure of my righteousness before God, a measure that we could never have lived up to. And the last verse of that section, verse 6 of the passage, the chapter we're looking at today, verse 6 reads, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Now, Paul's not going to make any more mention of the Spirit until we get to chapter 8. And then he mentions the Spirit 20 times. 
But for the rest of chapter 7, our passage today, Paul's taking an important aside before he gets to chapter 8. He's using himself as a portrait for what a realistic picture of the Christian life is to look like. At least, look like apart from the Spirit. Is it all victory and plain sailing now that we are in Christ? Paul answers that very honestly. And he does so by addressing our past trouble with the law and then linking that to our present trouble with a different kind of law. Honestly, it paints a pretty bleak view of ourselves seen in isolation from God's grace in order that to show the wonders and glory of the new life that we have in Christ when we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's all waiting for us in chapter 8 when we get there eventually. But as we consider the bleak view of mankind and of Christians that Paul paints for us in chapter 7, of our past and of our present trouble we face, he does include a singular glorious brushstroke of the rescue that we have available to us from our trouble. So first of all, we're going to consider our past trouble with the law from verses 7 through 13. And the first thing I want us to see is that Paul goes to great lengths to say what's not the trouble. He wants to be crystal clear on what's not the trouble. Paul starts our passage with a question in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And he immediately answers, by no means. Where does that question come from? Who might be asking that sort of question? Well, if you back up into verse 1 of chapter 7, you see that Paul says, I am speaking to those who know the law. He's got in mind, particularly, any Jewish members of his audience. Uh, and although we may not be predominantly Jewish, we do know many of God's instructions and right and wrong from the Bible. So it would do us well to pay attention to what he's addressing. So why might Paul feel that he has to clarify for his Jewish audience what he's teaching or what he's thinking about the law? Well, just think about and reflect upon some of what he's already said so far through this letter. In chapter 3, verse 20, he said, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Chapter 4, verse 15, For the law brings wrath. Romans chapter 5 verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. And then as Paul's talking about the new life that we have in Christ under God's grace, he says other things similar to that. He said in chapter 6 verse 14, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And then as we've seen already in verse 6 of this chapter, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So you can imagine a Jewish audience questioning Paul, saying, what are you saying here, Paul? Are you suggesting that the trouble that we're in is at least in some way the fault of the law? 
Are you saying that there's something wrong with God's law in a moral sense? And sensitive to that question, Paul is eager to answer it, but he actually takes it even one step further. He pushes the point. In verse 10, he says, The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. And then he follows it up with another question in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Again, he doesn't let that question linger any longer than necessary by answering, by no means. As well as giving an immediate response then to both of those questions, Paul also includes in this passage, in this section, a crystal clear reason for why he gives this answer. In verse 12, he says, no, the law is not the trouble. In verse 12, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The past trouble we were in, in failing to meet God's law, was in no way due to any shortcomings, and certainly not to any wickedness within the law itself. Paul just won't let that thought stand. The law comes from God himself. And to say that the law is in some way evil, or that in some way the law carries the poison of, of death, is to speak evil against the good character of God himself. And as shocking or as ludicrous as that might sound to us, it should not come as any surprise. Seeing as mankind has been trying to pin blame for their trouble on someone or something else, even on God, from the very, very beginning. You remember Adam's response in the Garden of Eden after eating the fruit from the one forbidden tree? The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Such arrogant blame-shifting didn't work then, and Paul wants to make clear it won't work now in considering our past trouble with the law. There is nothing wrong with God's law, quite the opposite. It is holy and righteous and good. So what was our trouble with the law? Paul doesn't excuse himself from the answer he gives, but actually uses himself as an illustration. He finishes verse 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. God's law serves to reveal our sin. And Paul has said this previously. We've already looked at this in chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In our passage, Paul's using the example of the Tenth Commandment, not to covet, not to long for those things that belong to other people. But he could be using any other aspect of God's commandments. Paul's point is that without the commandments of God's law, Sin lay dormant, as it were, within him. But when God's law comes into play, sin now has something to act against. 
it makes me think of the behavior of a magnet. Now, for the purposes of this illustration, don't worry about the laws of magnetism, uh, if, that's, if you're a physicist, because that, that I know that opposite poles attract. That is not the point of the illustration. The point is simply the effects that magnets can have on each other. So imagine for me, for a minute, just a magnet sitting on a table all by itself. Nothing happens, doesn't do anything. It's still a magnet, but the magnet has no effect. But if you bring another magnet then close to it, one of two things is going to happen. Either the first magnet lying there on the table is going to be drawn to the new magnet so that it moves without seeming even to having to touch it and it clings to the new magnet. Or, as you bring that new magnet in, the magnet sitting on the table is going to be repelled away, seemingly of its own accord, moving away in the opposite direction. Sin in us responds to God's law in that second way. Were it left alone, sin would still be there. It just doesn't have something to re resist and react against. But when God's law is held against our sin, God's righteous standards are revealed and made clear, sin comes alive and acts. But it doesn't act to draw us to God. It acts to push us away, to move us far, far away. Changing the metaphor somewhat, but using a more biblical one, the Apostle John says a very similar thing in his gospel. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, speaking of Jesus Christ. And the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. As Christians, we should know this to be true of us. Before we receive God's mercy and grace in Christ, the law served only to identify and call attention to our sin. The Old Testament alone was enough to condemn us, but then Jesus heightened and sharpened the standards of the law even further when he expounded them for us in the Sermon on the Mount. God's standards apply to the thoughts of our minds and the desires of our hearts as much as they do to the actions of our bodies. Ultimately, Jesus summarized the law in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God gave his commandments so that his creatures would know the way of fullness of joy and life. The promise of life in verse 11 of our passage today. But sin within us sees the opportunity of using the law to repel us away. Away from God's law and away from God himself. In fact, because God is holy and life-giving, and his, display, his, his commands are the way of life. Sin revealed itself for how serious sin is in driving us away from God in his holiness and life. Sin embraced rebellion and death. 
as verse 13 says, sinful beyond measure, condemning us to the punishment that sin rightly deserves, death and everlasting condemnation before a holy and just God. For the Christian who has received mercy and grace through Jesus, this describes the past trouble that we've had with the law. Praise God that we have been rescued from that trouble through Jesus and his gospel. That without the presence of sin, he lived his life fully in accord with God's law, attracted to God, fully walking hand in hand with what God had called him to do. And yet he freely chose to give up that perfect life upon the cross in exchange for the repelling sinful life that you and I had led receiving on himself the punishment that was due to us so that we might receive the prize that was due to him. We saw in Romans chapter 6 that we have been united to Christ in his death so that we can be united to him in his life, in his risen life. And we, as we read in 6 verse 11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning or listening online, then I'm so glad that you're here. I'm glad you're engaging with God's word. But I'm afraid Scripture doesn't speak of this trouble for you in past tense. There is only judgment waiting for those who have not yet received the new life that Jesus has to offer, the forgiveness and mercy for our sins. And I implore you to listen to the invitation that Christ offers you to receive forgiveness. Repent and receive with gratefulness a clean slate that he offers to you. But there is application for all of us here this morning out of this section as we think about the trouble that we were in. And it's regarding how we think about God's law. First of all, in our own walk with the Lord, it's important that we examine ourselves ever so carefully for any thinking or attitude towards God's law as being anything other than holy and righteous and good, just as God is holy and righteous and good. I want to encourage all of us here to consider carefully whether there's been any subtle blame-shifting that's become a pattern for you in your heart and in your mind. Something that essentially says, God's a little bit to blame for my law breaking. Children, you know that God's law says to obey your parents in the fifth commandment and again in Ephesians chapter 6. Do you ever seek to deflect just a little bit of that responsibility for dishonoring your parents? with the thought that if God truly understood who your parents were and what they were asking of you, he'd have to accept that he's being a little bit unreasonable and he really should shoulder just a little bit of the responsibility for your disobedience and dishonor. You know that it's wrong to lust after those images, but do you ever go down the line of thinking that, well, God made her to look that way and you know what? He made me to feel the way that I do when I look at her. So 
Surely some of my sin falls at God's feet. You know that you are to submit to governing authorities which God has instituted. So shouldn't God be a little bit responsible for why you do what you do on your tax return? Because we know what the government's going to do with the money, right? Let's be clear. God carries no responsibility for your sin or mine. Not one percent, not one hundredth of one percent. Our trouble is 100% our responsibility because it is our sin. Be ruthless with your thinking and repent of patterns of thought that may dishonor God if you find them. Accept God's commands as he intends them to be accepted. Not neutral, but holy and righteous and good. And ask him to increase your delight in them, as well as your strength to follow them. A second application for us is to think about how we should take care when we present the law as a communication of the gospel, or even as we rehearse it in our own minds. Specifically, how we present the trouble between God's law and our sin. We've already seen that mankind's failure to meet God's standards are 100% our fault and our responsibility. It is in no way that God sets totally unreasonable expectations that we could never meet. You've possibly heard illustrations, maybe even used them, to communicate the impossibility of sinners being able to earn or to work to be sufficiently righteous with God such as a person trying to jump over the Grand Canyon. In fact, that illustration is used in a booklet that we have in the back there, How Good Are You? And if you've not picked one up, I encourage you to do so. But illustrations are usually only intended to illustrate or convey one, at the most, maybe two points. And if we're not careful in our thinking and in our communication... Our hearers might take something from an illustration like that that is not intended in terms of the gospel and has a very deadly and dangerous implication. Jumping across the Grand Canyon illustrates that as sinners, we can never earn our right standing with God, however hard we try. But it absolutely does not mean that God sets unreasonably high standards for us to meet, or impossibly high standards that we should meet. And let's face it, none of us are trying to jump towards God. We're all trying to go in the opposite direction. The first two chapters of the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve walked before God in the garden, and things were very good. Jesus, fully man, walked with God for some 30-odd years. People need to hear that God is perfectly just to hold us 100% accountable for failing to meet his holy standards. And when we hear that and when we receive that, that makes the good news of Jesus' rescue from our trouble all the much better. But if Jesus has rescued us from past trouble from the law, 
What does the Christian life look like now in the present? Paul goes on to that then in verses 14 to 23. And you may have noticed he switches from the past tense to the present tense. And yet he connects the two together with that little word at the beginning of verse 14, for, to show that the Christian should expect a similar present trouble with the law or a law, although it's a different kind of trouble and a different kind of law than what Paul has recently, previously been describing. Now, before we dive in there, let me just make a little aside uh, considering these verses. There are a number of very respected uh, theologians and commentators who hold a variety of different perspectives on who Paul is talking about in the first person in these verses. Some hold that he's talking about himself as a Christian. Some that he's talking about himself, but before he was a Christian. Some, or maybe went himself as an immature and a young Christian. Some say he's even using the I kind of metaphorically to speak as a representative for the people of Israel. Well, time doesn't allow me to go into any of those, um, other than to tell you where I land and how I'll be preaching this passage. I and, and Pastor Paul settle on a plain reading of these verses that Paul is speaking of himself as a Christian. And therefore, these verses apply to all of us as Christians. And if you want to talk about that more later on, feel free to grab me afterwards. So having said that, these verses then paint a picture of the present life for the Christian. And it's a picture, quite frankly, as equally bleak as the picture painted of our past trouble. And I think that is the point that Paul is trying to make. Paul's saying that just because I'm a Christian and I'm alive in Christ, now is not the time to start trusting in myself. Paul's going to go on and expound on, on what we read in verse 6 about what it means to serve in the new way of the Spirit in chapter 8, as I said already. But in these verses, the Spirit is notable by his complete absence. And what Paul's doing is he's drilling home the point that what Christian life is like in the flesh, as he says, and how in another letter he can call himself the chief of sinners. The present trouble that Paul finds himself in is with a different law. It's no longer the law of God, but now it is what he calls the law of sin. In verse 23, he says, I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, that's not a contradiction to what he's previously said in chapter 6, if you've been following along. He said in chapter 6, verse 14, as an example, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. In that chapter, Paul was proclaiming the good news that for believers united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, sin's authority over us has been broken. It no longer is our ruler. It's been dethroned as the ruler of our lives. But we also saw in that chapter that despite being dethroned, 
sin has not been fully evicted from our lives. And that's why Paul's covering this in chapter 7. He's speaking about the Christian's life of this conflict between a renewed mind in Christ and the old flesh that's used to submitting to the old ruler of sin. And so these verses reflect the ongoing trouble in the Christian life until final glory. But it's worth remembering that it's not all that the Bible says about the Christian life, lest we despair. Remember, we've, we've read elsewhere, Paul himself writes to the Philippian church, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the author of the letter to the Hebrews writes in, verse, in chapter, 11, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Romans chapter 7 is informed by those verses. And those verses are informed by Romans chapter 7. Paul is being honest and real about the Christian walk. Christians should not be shiny plastic people. Anxious that no one really finds out what's going on in our hearts and our inner wrestling. These verses give us permission to be honest with one another. In our community groups, in our Bible studies, in our prayer requests to one another. Permission to be transparent with our trouble with the law of sin that still wages war within us. You may be familiar with the short story of a man who was very transparent. There's a story that the uh, Times of London in the early 1900s posed a question to some well-known authors asking this question, what's wrong with the world today? And a well-known author at the time, G.K. Chesterton, is said to have responded with a one-sentence reply. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. These verses give an honest assessment of the Christian life. But it would be wrong to think that these verses are completely without evidence of God's grace at work in the Christian. In verse 22, Paul says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That represents a mind-blowing, supernatural work of God. A work that only God can do in the believer by the grace that he gives. A complete shift from the past trouble that we had with God and his law that we looked at earlier in our passage. It's because Paul sees and knows the remarkable work of God in himself that he expresses such devastation over this conflict that he experiences. And he communicates it and writes it in such stark terms. In verse 19, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil 
lies close at hand. This whole section guards us against an error, an error of perfectionism. Either believing that the Christian is made perfect at the point of conversion, or that perfection is attainable this side of God's kingdom. People have held that view or those views at different times throughout church history. I don't think it's a very common view held today, uh, at least not in that form. But I do wonder how many of us go as far as Paul to describe the conflict within us. To describe the work, the law that's at work within us that opposes God's ways, to describe it as evil. I think it is relatively common. I hear this in Christian circles, interjected into conversations at different points. I know I'm not perfect. And I don't mean in any way to criticize using that phrase or suggest that I know what people's hearts or minds are behind using it. I've used it myself. But saying I'm not perfect is not the same as saying I see evil in me and in my actions. You see, I'm not perfect doesn't show or communicate how far short of perfect I am. And although we may not hold to a view of perfectionism, I do worry. I do worry for myself and I worry for all of us that we can too easily accept life with its cousin, what I'll call sufficientism. See, sufficientism says, I'm not perfect, but I'm close enough. At least I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm sufficient. I'm sufficiently holy in my opinion. And when we view and adopt a view of sufficientism, we're not going to be crying out with Paul, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this bondage of death? Rather, we might say on occasion instead, excuse me, Jesus, if you're not too busy, could you give me a hand? That's what sufficientism will say. Such a view of myself elevates my assessment of how I'm doing. And it diminishes my desperate need for Christ to deliver me. And that results in diminished praise and glory to God. And it results in diminished affection and joy in Christ. Today's passage would shake us out of any sense of being sufficiently holy before God and cause us to see where we fall short in stark terms. Jesus himself taught his disciples to pray this very way. In praying to our Heavenly Father in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, do you remember he says, don't forget to pray this way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Certainly that evil can be around us. But our passage today shows us that we should have ourselves in mind when we pray that way. Asking God to continue to deliver me from the law of sin that I see at work within me. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson um, puts it this way, and we have this quote to share. 
The truth of the matter is, uh, there's a previous slide to this one, I think, Noah. Thank you. The truth of the matter is that now, as a Christian, I must see myself from two perspectives and say two contrasting things about my life. In myself, there dwells no good thing by my own creation or nature, referring to Romans 7, 18. And in Christ, I have been cleansed, justified and sanctified so that in me, glorification has begun, referring to 1 Corinthians 6.11. The New Testament will not allow us to reduce these two polarities to a common denominator. We must say both. God has given me a new identity with a glorious destiny. In myself, I am utterly defiled and deserve only death. I encourage all of us to be informed by this passage of Scripture and to prayerfully pursue a higher view of God's holiness and our righteousness in Christ, and at the same time, a right view and a lower view of our own sinfulness in the flesh. And the result of that that we should expect to see is greater joy in praising God for his mercy and grace and the deliverance that we receive by his grace in Jesus Christ. Greater moment-by-moment -moment dependence upon the Spirit of Christ who lives in us and allows us to walk in his ways. If God is bringing recognition and conviction of sufficientism in your own attitude towards God, in his call to be holy as he is holy, well, then the solution is offered to you in this passage. Cry out to the Lord, wretched man or woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thank you, Lord, through Jesus Christ. Make that your cry of repentance and may it be the basis of your sure hope for God's grace to continue to sustain you and to continue to transform you through Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus to rescue us from our past trouble with the law. And he is faithful to deliver us to, from the dominion of sin into new life of grace. Just as we do that, we must continually look to Jesus. Continually looking to him for rescue from our present trouble. With the law of sin that is at work within our members knowing that he remains faithful and that he remains merciful to deliver us from the evil within, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year after year, until we will finally stand with him in glory. If I can invite the music team to join me up on the stage, let me pray at the end of our message and also as we transition to the Lord's Supper. Father God, you are good and gracious. You have shown your love and your mercy to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes that goodness and love and mercy includes helping us to see our state right to see it from your perspective, to see and understand sin as you see sin. 
to see and understand the trouble that we have been in with your law and to see what trouble we presently are in with the law of sin that wages war within us. Lord, I pray that we would take these matters seriously. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to look to you and not to ourselves. Help us not to be complacent, to be happy with where we are, to repent of thinking that we are sufficient, and to pursue you. Help us to press on, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Help us to go on by your power, the power of your Holy Spirit, that our lives may give glory to you and that we would delight in the rescue that we receive through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we receive communion, I pray that you would strengthen us. As we receive and take into ourselves the elements, help us to remember and receive the fact that you are with us. You are with us and you are in us by your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us in our fight against sin. Strengthen us to turn our backs, to recognize we, we are not under the rule of sin, but it is still present. Lord, we repent and we ask for your help. Thank you that we can look to you and know that you are always ready to help us. We ask that you, that you will be glorified through our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.